0: Welcome to Scope of Practice, a podcast that opens a window for an inside look into different practice groups and the lives of attorneys in those groups here at Ropes & Gray. I'm Yoni Levy, an associate in our asset management group based in Boston. On this episode, I'm joined by Chelsea Childs, an associate in our asset management group based in San Francisco. Hi, Chelsea.
1: Hi, Yoni. Thanks for having me on the podcast.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. A A treat for all of us, I'm sure. Um, to, to begin, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, introduce us to uh, to your career and, and who you are.
1: I'm a senior associate in the San Francisco office in the Asset Management Group, and I've been with Robson Gray for uh, about a little over two and a half years. Um, I was a, a lateral associate from another firm, and I'll give you a little bit of background, I guess, of how I, how I got there and why I decided to leave my prior firm uh, for Ropes and Gray. So I graduated from Boston University in 2011, and I started as a first-year associate at another large law firm in Boston.
0: Were you doing the same line of work at your old firm?
1: I was, yeah. So um, I was in uh, the asset management group there uh, at my old firm, and I focused exclusively on registered funds. My practice has evolved since joining ropes. And now I do both registered fund work and private fund work. And that was one of the reasons why it was attractive to me to join this firm. It was more welcoming to having a broader practice, which I was interested in.
0: Did your prior firm do both types of work, but you were just sort of put into a box or uh, in general, your firm sort of only did the registered fund space?
1: they primarily did registered funds there was some private fund practice but the 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 strategy of the firm was to be a little bit more specialized and there are certainly lawyers here at ropes who are very specialized as well but um there's also i think more attorneys who are doing a little bit more of a more of a jack of all trades if you will
0: yeah yeah and and listeners will remember from the prior podcast if they've had a chance to listen to the last episode, that, you know, there is a major hub of work at Ropes that's sort of built around asset management. So it's not surprising uh, that we have sort of large practices in the private funds and the registered funds space. Uh, Maybe now would be a good opportunity to just briefly remind listeners, you know, what the difference is between registered uh, and, uh, and private funds. And then maybe you can use that as a jumping off point to explain to us why you wanted to diversify your practice out of just registered funds, and uh, I guess conversely, why you wanted to keep your foot in the registered fund space as well.
1: Sure. So registered funds are mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, and also closed-end funds, which are regulated quite heavily under the Investment Company Act of 1940 and they are registered with the SEC the securities and exchange commission and because of that because of that registration there are a lot of regulatory restrictions and and filings that have to be made and they're much more um they're much more conservative from an investment standpoint than private funds so hedge funds or private equity style funds which are generally not available to retail investors because they don't have the same protections that registered funds do. So the the difference, although they're both funds and they both sometimes even have relatively similar investment strategies from a, a broad perspective, um, the practice of representing private funds or representing registered funds is actually quite different. Um, And there's a lot of different skills involved in both with the registered fund space being more regulatory in nature, and then the private fund space being a little bit more, I would say, like business focused, like negotiations play much more of a role um, in private funds work than registered funds work.
0: Yeah, interesting. I actually spent two years doing registered funds work and then sort of Shifted out of the space to doing only private funds work, uh, mostly because in the dynamic you described I, I found that to be the case too, and i the reg- the regulatory work just did not appeal to me quite as much
1: yeah it's funny a lot of a lot of junior associates who think they might be interested in asset management often are more attracted to private funds work before they know any anything about either type, and I think that's just because. You see shows like Billions uh, on Showtime and, and things that are a little bit more sexy, if you will, for private funds, hedge funds, whereas registered funds, you know, these are the things that go in your 401k, they're not quite as, as exciting uh, in some regards. But that doesn't at all mean that the work that we do on them is not as exciting. And the reason that I really like doing both types of work is because it keeps things interesting. So on the registered fund side, it's a little bit more of like legal analysis. Often you have to analyze, okay, my client is a fund that wants to engage in this type of investment strategy. Is that allowed? There are restrictions on the amount of leverage, for example, that a fund, uh, a registered fund could incur. Uh, You would have to look at the regulations and see if that's permitted and how you work with them, the client to figure out how they can craft their strategy within the confines of those regulations. So it's a little bit more like what you learn in law school about taking a statute or taking a a rule that's been promulgated by an administrative agency and applying it to the facts, which is what I liked. I really enjoyed that um, that challenge in law school. But then you also have on the private fund side, negotiations with investors where the world is your oyster in terms of what you're able to agree to or not from a legal perspective. And it's more of a business considerations that are that are guiding those decisions.
0: I find it's fun to be part of those commercial discussions and sort of in the trenches with your clients on them. Um, we should mention also that there is a regulatory aspect to private funds, of course, uh large part of it relates to making sure that you're not caught by the investment company act that you fit within some exemption um and that's a somewhat major focus of our uh practice as you know private funds lawyers um but also the you know investment advisors themselves have to be registered or have some exemption from the investment advisors act and the offerings of the securities have to have some exemption from the securities act so there is A fair amount of overlap uh, in terms of the statutes we have to consider. It's just how applicable each statute ends up being uh, will depend on whether it's fully applicable to you or only partially. Um, And as Chelsea said, in the registered fund space, of course, it's fully applicable to you, so you're uh, subject to the full gambit of uh, the rules and regulations, which tends to make it more regulatory-focused overall. But of course, there are attorneys in the private fund space who manage to have a private funds practice that's focused entirely on those rules that do apply to private funds uh advisors and also there can be rules about trades and the like. So there you know, there's still a regulatory world within the private funds space as well. Um and I think a large part of what attracts people to that is that same sort of intellectual itch that I think Chelsea was describing where, you know, you get to really dive into and engage in Analysis of statutes. I, I think there's really is uh, regulatory work to be found in both spaces. If you're looking for it, I just think in the registered fund space, um, it's more prevalent and and sort of less em- less the emphasis in the um, in the private fund space. But probably also, uh, you know, the reciprocal is true on the commercial stuff. Right? There's certainly commercial considerations you go through with your clients on the registered fund side. Um, you know, it's just less of a key factor than on the private fund side. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's definitely right. And and one of the other sort of soft skills that I like uh, that come up in the registered fund space is advising uh, the boards of trustees of the registered funds. So that is a requirement under the Investment Company Act that every registered fund would have a, a board of directors or trustees Um, a majority of whom are typically independent from the investment advisors that runs that fund. So these are people who maybe used to be a CFO and they're retired and now they sit on the board. And we advise the board in many cases and attend the board meetings and prepare the board materials and minutes. And that aspect of the registered fund practice is really satisfying to me because Your client is more of a a regular person. It's a a director, it's a trustee, rather than a fund or an advisor entity. And so you are able to be in a little bit more of an advisory role with somebody who doesn't have the background. Like if you are advising a client that's at an investment advisor, your client typically has the same similar background to you. Maybe you're the Expert, but the client knows what the law generally is, whereas that's not the case on the board side and so you're you're starting a little bit from from the basics, which um can be an interesting aspect as well
0: that's fascinating and do you go to the actual board meetings?
1: Yes, mhm, that's one oh. of the best parts you get to go and you know, rub elbows with the trustees and they'll have dinners and drinks. And it's it's also fun um, from social aspect as
0: well. Yeah, that's really cool. That sounds like it's a really good time. I'll, I'll say part of what you said resonated with me on the private side in that one of the areas of my practice that I enjoy the most is when I'm working with first time sponsors. Uh, you know, people, typically people who have left other firms where they had sort of a very narrow scope where they invested in deals, right? They did deals and they were very successful and now they want to start their own management company, their own firm to, to run. And so they know a lot, like you're saying, about you know how to run deals and make deals, but they don't know a ton about how to set up a sponsor uh, entity about how the arrangements should go on an employment perspective, how the arrangements should go in terms of the terms of the funds, because sometimes they came from such a big organization that had a million people in it, and they were focused on making investments, not on whether they were complying with the you know partnership agreement or the like, and so I also very much like that when it feels like you're advising a person. I I agree. I like that too. And it feels more like you're a real value add.
1: Absolutely. When you really can show that you're the expert.
0: Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, So I think something I like to ask people, because I think it's a point of curiosity for law students, is sort of how your practice compares to other practices in the firm, you know, in as much as you're familiar with them, in terms of the timelines, the client relationships you have, the types of tasks. But in your case, I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about that, but also since you have sort of a, a, a two-part practice where you have two different focus areas, if you could give us a sense of how maybe those two areas are different within your own practice.
1: Sure. They are, they are quite different um, in terms of the timelines. Uh, I would say in terms of the client relationships, which is what I like most about the field of asset management in general, they're relatively similar. And what I mean by that and what's different, I think, than your typical corporate transactional practice like M&A, for example, is clients engage us on a long-term basis to represent the advisory entity in its business or represent a fund throughout its life. Rather than just being engaged for particular events. So like litigation, for example, there's a case, you're engaged to represent the client in the case, the case is over, you win or you lose, and then the client goes away until maybe the next time they get sued and hopefully you try and win that business again. Similar with M&A, you're engaged for a deal and then the deal happens or, or it dies and then the client goes away with the deal whereas that's not the case in asset management. Even if we are being engaged for a particular fund launch for a manager, it's the relationship still lasts after that fund has already launched. And in because of that, you're able to develop more long-term personal relationships with your clients, which is not only great for being able to advise them better, you learn more about their business and more about their personal preferences, but it's also great from a networking perspective because if ever you decide you want to look at look at in-house opportunities, you have a little bit more of a view as what that in an in-house role might look like. You also have probably better relationships with people with attorneys who are currently in-house. So I like that I like that client relationship aspect very much about asset management. I think it's quite different from a number of other practices.
0: I found that, too, uh, that that's the case, that it's very uh, long-term. And just to sort of piggyback off of what you're saying, you know, you get the opportunity to feel a little bit like you're their internal lawyer, right, because it's such an ongoing relationship. And then the things you learn about their business really helps you provide sort of better service to them on an ongoing basis because you'll be looking through their conflicts, disclosure, right? And you'll say, oh, hey, I remember we discussed that you're hiring this advisor to do XYZ. I'm not sure that's really covered here, right? And when you have an ongoing relationship with the client and you feel really sort of integrated into the things they're doing, you're able to provide better value to them in the big picture. And then also, I think you're able to provide value to the firm, right? A lot of the work that we do on the uh, deal side are deals for clients that are funds, fundraising clients, and of course, you know, different parts of the firm feed work to each other all the time. But I think a big source of that of that sort of directed work is from funds clients who are then looking to do deals.
1: Absolutely. That, that's definitely true. And so that second question, part of that question, you asked about timelines and the, the types of tasks. And that's where I do think it, it differs quite a bit between registered funds and private funds. So registered funds, I mentioned earlier, they're regulated by the SEC, and there are a number of filings that you have to make, both um, annual, so that the offering documents of a registered fund need to be updated annually, whereas on the private fund side, some managers may decide to do that, but it's not a, a regulatory requirement. And the shareholders of the registered funds also need to be provided with semiannual financial statements and shareholder reports. There are monthly filings that are required as well. So there's a number of periodic filings that are happen at the same time every year, every quarter. And in that way, it's quite predictable. So you're able to plan a vacation a little bit better, maybe because you know, oh, my client's annual updates occur at this time, and then I'll, I'll book a vacation afterwards. Whereas on the private fund side, you don't always get that same predictability. If you're working on a hedge fund that has quarterly subscriptions, you might be able to plan around that because you know, oh, investors are likely going to be coming in to the fund this quarter. I'll be engaging in negotiations with them, so that will be a busy time. But in terms of when a fund is launched, the timeline for fund launch differs, uh, as you know, very differently from fund to fund. So I think the registered fund work is just a little steadier and more predictable than the private fund work.
0: Yeah, that's certainly consistent with what I've heard and I think seen over the years. And I like to say that I think it's a bit of a spectrum where I think probably even less predictable. Um, and, some, and you know, the people in that group would probably say more exciting is the straight-up M&A deal work, right, or the IPOs, that world where there's really a pressing timeline because a deal needs to close before valuations go stale or before, you know, exclusivity period ends, um, et cetera, where there's really, really a tight timeline. Whereas, as Chelsea alluded to, there's somewhat less predictability as compared to uh, a registered fund in the private funds world but it's also largely being driven by just the commercial discussions with your clients on when it makes sense to hold a closing for example and so it's somewhat more predictable i think than most deal work where it's sort of run 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 and then pause and then run 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 and then pause we have sort of more of an ongoing steady pace um you know i think uh probably registered funds work is more is more like a marathon overall um but, you know, there's there's sort of a spectrum of of how demanding the timelines can be.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: And then how do you find that the work uh, in terms of the really like the types of tasks you're doing is different? I I imagine that, you know, I think you alluded to this earlier that the registered fund work involves more research, for example. Um, But, you know, what about drafting? Are you drafting lots of? Formal memos on the registered side. I know on the unregistered side, on the private side, I don't do a ton of memo drafting. I do lots of, you know, client calls, maybe some LPA and side letter drafting, negotiation calls, those kinds of things, but not a lot of formal drafting or research. What are your uh, tasks like in, in each of your practice areas?
1: There is definitely, you're right about that, more drafting of research memos and and the like on the Registered Fund side. And a lot of those are pieces that are targeted toward the board. So I mentioned earlier, these are the stewards of the fund, if you will. And so they have these duties and we will write memos describing their duties. And they'll be included in the board materials, uh, a description of a new fund that's being launched, we would probably write a memo on that and describing the strategy and what the what the requirements are for the board to approve the agreements on behalf of that fund. So there are definitely more opportunities to flex your writing muscles, if you will, on the registered fund side. But both both types of funds have offering documents that need to be drafted. They both have either a private placement memorandum or a prospectus with respect to the registered funds. Um, They both have governing documents. So in that sense, the drafting is relatively on par, I would say. In terms of client calls, the calls that we have on the registered fund side are typically not negotiation calls um, because, The investors in those funds don't have the opportunity to negotiate. You just purchase uh, shares of the fund at the net asset value of the fund or at the the price that's listed on the exchange, um, unlike a private fund where there's an opportunity to negotiate certain discounts or other types of information rights or something. So there's less negotiation on the registered fund side, um, but still a number of calls still a lot of calls on both on both practices. One of the interesting projects that I'm working on right now, actually, is it's pretty fun for me because I'm relatively unique in doing both registered funds and private funds. And this one of my clients has recently given me the opportunity to to use both in this project. So it's a registered fund that is looking to invest in private funds and the it enters into side letters with these private funds which are much different than your typical private fund side letters but it's still a negotiation nonetheless and that is fun for me because a lot of the things that we're trying to negotiate in these side letters are requirements that my client the registered fund has to comply with because it's subject to the investment company act And I'm negotiating these provisions with other private fund lawyers, with lawyers at other firms who are not very familiar with the Investment Company Act, because as you said before, on the private fund side, you're only trying to make sure that you're not in scope and then that's it. So they're not familiar with what these requirements are.
0: Yeah, it's fun when something hits on the sweet spot of of where you really feel like you're the best suited person to work on it. I think the product you you raise is, uh, as an example, is a perfect illustration of how I think when I talk to law students, a lot of times it seems like their understanding is that there's like firm, rigid buckets and you're in one bucket or the other bucket. And if you're doing X kind of work, you can't do Y kind of work. And that's really not the case, right? There's really a whole gambit of work within each group. Um, like I was saying before about there being lots of, you know, regulatory work, even within the private fund space. Um, and the same is true, for example, of transactional work. A major focus of my practice of late has been on transactions that fit more in the asset management bucket than in the classic M&A bucket. And that's because there are transactions that happen all the time within our space And the same thing with, you know, like you're saying, there's not always a rigid uh, distinction between registered and unregistered funds. And I think that the case that you showed is a a perfect illustration of that, of why coming to a firm like Ropes for your legal services is fantastic, because you can find a lawyer like you who knows a ton about both registered and private funds.
1: Yeah. And whenever you don't, you're working on a project that is new to you. There is almost always somebody in the firm who has done something similar uh if not identical, which is great, so we're able to to pick their brains and and use those synergies too,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly, and I think. Uh, an important point to keep in mind is that everyone's learning something at some point, right? No one is born with knowledge of how funds work. Um, and most of us don't even learn anything about it in law school. Uh, so that's the, the purpose of, of being at a firm uh, with a network like this is that you, you're you always going to be doing something for the first time um, at least once. So, you know, at least you have the support there to help teach you through it. Um, speaking of that, were there any classes that you found in law school that were particularly helpful or maybe Um, that you took outside of law school, or did you have any background experience otherwise in the fund space before you joined your last firm?
1: Um, I did not have any background before I joined my last firm. I essentially went, with with the exception of a brief six-month internship, I basically went to law school right out of college. Being a strong writer is really important. And things like securities regulation or corporations, While they provide you a helpful background when you're starting out, we really give you all the tools that you need to do the job at ROPES. So I don't think that law students necessarily need to be concerned about taking any particular classes. I would say take what you think is going to be interesting. When you get here, we'll train you up and make sure that you know what you need to know, whether or not you have any prior background in the space
0: yeah what's great is that you were not there for the recording of our last episode, but you basically just entirely agreed with my uh with what I said there, so that's fantastic for listeners to hear that that's you know generally a true point that you know you really don't have to worry about which particular classes you're taking or about having a background as I mentioned. How have you seen sort of your practice, your personal practice growing, how do you see it continuing to grow, and how does that sort of fit into the the group in the firm generally?
1: I think I'll answer the question with respect to the asset management practice in San Francisco, because I would like to to just showcase the fact that we're doing a lot of really exciting things in San Francisco and client development um, and, and business development initiatives. And that was one of the things that really attracted me to Ropes and Gray in San Francisco. So I, I started in Boston at another large firm. I moved to the San Francisco office of that firm about five years ago and then lateraled to ropes at the beginning of 2019. And the reason I decided to leave was that I was looking for a more active asset management practice in San Francisco, um, both in terms of, of number of people in the office and then also in terms of, of the work opportunities. Like now I get to do private funds where I didn't get to do that at my prior firm and business development opportunities. So when you ask like where I see my practice growing in the coming years, I really see it developing out of a lot of the initiatives that we have going on in the San Francisco office um, in particular with respect to our asset management group. So one of the things that one of our partners, Melissa Bender has, has started recently a couple of years ago was a Women in Asset Management Network. And it's a group of women who are at our clients, they're at um, service providers to our clients, our prospective clients, it includes the, the asset management attorneys in, in our firm. And it's a mostly a social gathering, but they're all women in the asset management space, both registered funds and private funds and regulatory type focuses. And we do quarterly events in person. Um, originally, currently we've been doing um, more virtual types of social events. But it's been a really satisfying way to engage with clients and to meet potential new clients. And that's one that entrepreneurial spirit is one of the things that really attracted me to Roebel San Francisco and i think that that is where um i just see that continuing and i think that our my practice in particular will will benefit from those efforts
0: i think this uh sort of plays into what you were just telling us about sort of having that women in asset management group but you know what is the culture of uh you know the group generally maybe you want to talk a little bit about what the san francisco office culture is like In terms of you know formality mentorship relationships between various parties and sort of how you found both formal and informal mentorship uh, within the firm
1: sure Um, the the san francisco office i would say is more informal in a number of ways than some of the east coast offices and i think that's just generally true across organizations west coast west coasters typically seem to be a little bit more laid back. Um, So when I first joined uh, my prior San Francisco office from, from Boston, people were always saying, why do you dress up so much? And I've kind of continued that. And I'm probably one of the more um, formal dressers in the San Francisco office. So it is, it is, it does have a laid back West coast vibe to the extent that one can find that um, in a big law firm. (laughs) But in terms of, in terms of mentorship, that, leads to a lot of informal mentorship opportunities. I think there are probably about 70 attorneys in total in San Francisco, not including the asset management group. Everybody knows everybody. And so there's a lot of opportunities to just go down the hall or or meet, chat with somebody in the lunchroom and to pick their brain about something that you're working on or, if for junior associates to say oh i'm try- i'm working on with this some- a project with this partner directly have you worked with him before do you have any tips of of what his preferences might be for example so those types of conversations are are pretty prevalent um, when we're all in the office and there is also formal mentorship opportunities as well so when a- an associate joins a firm they are assigned a formal partner mentor and also a, a, an associate mentor. So those are people that you can go to with silly questions or to just talk about where you want your practice to go, what types of work you're looking for, or just generally make a make a relationship and go out to lunch and have fun and that's it. Um, so those formal mentorships are important, but I think the really valuable ones come from the more informal discussions and and relationships that you develop either with working with somebody or just n- having them be your office neighbor.
0: Yeah, I found that too. Um, the I, I find it funny to hear people describe the Boston office as more formal because I always think of the Boston office as very informal as compared to, you know, some of the New York-based firms. Um, I remember when I was interviewing and you know, I, I interviewed at a firm in New York and part of the pitch was... Oh yeah, you don't have to wear your jacket when you're in your office. You just like if you walk around the hallway, you should be wearing oh. a jacket. And you know, oh. in the in the Boston office, if you're wearing a jacket, people assume you're you're either going to meet with a client or you have some sort of interview. Um there's no, yeah, I know. you know, there's no there's no definitely no general suit wearing in the uh Boston office, but I guess I guess there isn't a ton of ripped jeans wearing either if that's what you're saying. Um,
1: Still no ripped jeans. We're not there yet, Um, but we still have to look somewhat presentable. But uh, there are sneakers, sneakers in good shape that appear from time to time. I will say that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think this is a a different different world out there. I think there's uh, a women's circle here in the Boston office. I think there's probably one in each of the offices. I know you talked about the sort of external asset management women's group. Are there any other affinity groups? uh that you're part of at ropes
1: yes there is a women's circle as well in san francisco and the silicon valley office although we don't have any asset management um attorneys in silicon valley just as a whole our two offices because we're so close in geography we do a lot of events together Um, both summer associate events with the Silicon Valley summers and then San Francisco summers. um, And also our office party, the office holiday party has been joined in the past too. So we typically do a number of events with that office and the women's circle is one of those where we combine, um, combine forces so that we have a larger group to draw from and, and more perspectives.
0: Oh, fantastic. Um, I want to also mention that you said, that a large part of your practice is focused on San Francisco and that, you know, you have great interactions with the San Francisco and Silicon Valley offices. Um, and that's fantastic. Uh, and that's certainly true obviously for me in the Boston area, but I also wanted to highlight that a large part of my practice at least has been with people in various offices. So I do lots of work with partners in New York. Um, I did a ton of work, uh, with uh, Rajmar Fatih, a partner in our San Francisco office, um, before he passed, I uh, do work with partners in, in London. Um, we really are fairly well integrated across the firm. And I'm sure that's the case for you, too.
1: That's absolutely true. Yes, I work with a lot of people in uh, partners in D.C. and New York and Boston, um, not just in San Francisco. Generally, our our client teams are staffed across offices, which often works to our advantage in terms of time differences.
0: Yeah, the time zone thing is is amazing, I have to say. I'm working on an Asia-based deal, uh, and Billy Zhang in our Hong Kong office is also staffed on it. And it's amazing because uh, the half the client team is in Asia and half of them are in New York. And so... Like half the time Billy's awake to be answering the emails, and half the time I'm awake, um, and we basically just hand off one to the other. So um, I agree that, that taking advantage of the time zone um, is really, really fantastic. Um, so I, you know, I think I've taken a lot of your time. I think before um, we wrap, maybe you could just tell us something fun you like to do in your spare time. Give us sort of a flavor for who you are outside of work.
1: Yeah, I'm a dog mom first and foremost. I I am obsessed with my dog Blanca. She's a German Shepherd mix. Uh, my husband and I adopted her during the pandemic, like a lot of people did. Um, and mostly my free time revolves around doing fun things with her. So I I'm currently living in Tahoe, uh, which is a great ski area in the winter, but also great hiking area in the summer so pretty much every weekend we're going on hikes with the dog she's recently gotten into kayaking and we've gotten her to be able to to sit still in the kayak and and just watch instead of trying to jump out and swim so that's been really fun as well
0: oh awesome i saw that uh diane feinstein is selling her house for like 47 million dollars in tahoe um i'm not sure if you if you're sitting on that kind of cash but you should look into it
1: yeah, she's not one of my neighbors. I, I'm, that's <laughs> not the neighborhood neighborhood that I'm located in.
0: <laughs> Chelsea, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you found this to be helpful. There's a specific practice group or area you'd like us to cover in a future episode. Please reach out to me directly. I'd love to hear from you. If you're a U.S. law student or recent graduate who would like to learn more, please visit our website at ropesgrayrecruiting.com or check us out on Instagram at ropesgray. You can subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please look out for future episodes and share with your friends. Thanks again for listening.